Isn't it great to be in the presence of God? Who likes spending time with friends and family? Isn't it great to be with people where you feel connected, comfortable, where you feel contented with the people that you're around? And of course, as you know, we're going to have an opportunity today to share a meal with Sam and Hannah and Faith and everybody else, part of our church family. And meal times often serve as that point in the day or the week when we come together and we share time. You know, when I was growing up, we didn't sit around a table and eat all the time, but we did sometimes. And when we did, they were special, special times where we connected in a different way. And at those times, there were stories being told. We'd share with each other's pain. We'd share what was going on in the day. We'd come together, we'd understand the, the pains, the loves, the losses, the successes and the failures of the day. And it was a time of being heard and a time of hearing. And they're important punctuation marks within our weeks. And it seems that God feels a very similar way. Let's turn to the Word of God to see what he has to say about it. So Genesis 3, verses 8 and 9. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from God among the trees in the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? The cosy, familial chat that we share with loved ones at the end of the day is what God came to do in the garden. But as we know, Adam had disobeyed God and as a consequence he hid himself from the presence of God. And that's part of the consequence of sin. Since then, there was separation from God. He never intended for us to be separated, but we turned away and we hid ourselves from him. So God called to Adam, where are you? And today God is still calling those who are separated from him, those who have hidden themselves, those who are lost from him, lost in their shame and their guilt and their condemnation. But from that point in the Garden of Eden, there was an interruption to the flow of God's presence with us. Man was over here hiding, and God was over there calling him. Let's fast forward to Moses. Moses had led the Israelites out of Egypt, where they'd been held in slavery about a year before this. And on this particular day, God called Moses to go up the mountain to receive the tablets, which were to be the instructions for the people for how to live. Then Moses went up to the mountain, and the cloud covered the mountain. The glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day he called to Moses out the midst of the cloud. Now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on the top of the mountain, in the sight of the people of Israel. Moses entered the cloud and went up on the mountain. And Moses was on the mountain forty days and forty nights. The glory of the Lord, his presence, it seemed like a consuming fire to the Israelites. They saw it as a fire. But what does fire mean? 
The fire issue is a warning often. It's a barrier and it burns. It burns away impurities. But to Moses, it was a cloud and he was able to enter in. While Moses was with God, God said to him in Exodus 25, 8, Let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. We see God's desire restated. He wanted to live with men to dwell in our midst. And then while Moses was up the mountain, unfortunately the Israelites decided to melt their gold and they made a molten calf and they worshipped that calf and they brought sacrifices to it. So God told the people through Moses that although he would still fulfill his promise to them and guide them to the promised land, that his presence would not go with them. And the people mourned. They missed the presence of God. But they had become at that point a rebellious people. Sin had driven a wedge between them and God. The Lord was still faithful to fulfill his promise, but he removed his presence. Moses took his tent and he pitched it outside the camp and he called it the tent of meeting because it was the place where he met with God. He was a man set apart and he set himself apart with his camp also. And in Exodus 33 from verse 9 we read, When Moses entered the tent, the pillar of the cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent and the Lord would speak to Moses. And when all the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, all the people would rise up and worship, each in his own tent door. Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face, as a man speaks to his friend. The Israelites were moving towards repentance. They were seeing the glory of the Lord upon the tent where Moses was, and they knew again what they were missing. And as they worshipped God, they started to recognise that God is a holy God. God is not a God to be messed with, or his laws to be taken lightly. They started to realise that they cannot walk in sin and enjoy the sustained presence of God. Moses asked God for an assurance that his presence would go with them, given that the people had repented. And God gave that, saying that his presence would go with them. In Exodus 33:18, we see how Moses desired even more of God. Moses said, please show me your glory. And he said, I will make my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. But he said, You cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock, and while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. I'm reminded of the hymn I used to sing as a child, 
rock of ages cleft for me, let me hide myself in thee. And when we're hid in Christ, the rock, we can approach boldly the very throne room of God. We can enjoy the presence of God as it moves over us in real and meaningful ways. After Moses was given the tablets of stone the second time, they got destroyed the first time because of the Israelites' disobedience. The Israelites then built a transportable tabernacle of meeting, they called it, as God had directed Moses to do. It was a place where the Ark of the Covenant lived when the tablets of stone were kept. And when it was finished, God moved in. Exodus 14.34 tells us, Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And verse 38 continues, For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and fire was on it by night, in the sight of all the house of Israel, throughout all of their journeys. So they had that guiding light. When they were people, they were moving. Change was upon them. These guys were moving from one place to another place. They were moving into the promise of God, and that meant change. But what they had was the consistent presence of God that remained with them throughout. God again was living with his people, day to day, moment by moment. Around 460 years later, we see in Second Samuel a situation where Nathan, who was a prophet, was told by God, Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, Would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day, but I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. I imagine God might have felt a little bit sad that he was still living in a tent, in a temporary structure all those years later. David didn't build the house for God, but his son Solomon did. And while it was under construction, God spoke in 1 Kings 6, saying, Concerning the house that you are building, if you walk in my statutes and obey my rules, and keep all my commandments and walk in them, then I will establish my word with you, which I spoke today with your father. And I will dwell among the children of Israel, and will not forsake my people Israel. And then a little later in First Kings chapter 8 from verse 9, tells us that there was nothing in the ark except the two tablets of stone that Moses put there at Horeb, where the Lord had made a covenant with the people of Israel when they came out of the land of Egypt. And when the priests came out of the holy place, a cloud filled the house of the Lord, so that the priest could not stand to minister because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. Solomon dedicated the temple after it was built. And part of that dedication, he made a supplication to the Lord and said, When your people disobey you as they will, will you forgive them? When your people turn their own way, will you forgive them? And within that there was a praise to God as well, because he was saying to God, I know that you are a holy God, that you are a righteous God, 
that you're slow to anger and that you love your people. And the presence of God came down. And God's reply after this dedication from Solomon was, I have heard the prayer and the plea that you've made before me. I have consecrated this temple which you have built by putting my name there forever. My eyes and my heart will always be there. His eyes, he's always watching. His heart, he's always responding to us. He's actively in his temple, wanting that communion with us, his people. God restates in Ezekiel his desire to live with us. My dwelling place will be with them. I will be their God and they will be my people. And let's fast forward again to the time of Jesus. Remember that God is a holy God. He's calling us back. But sin continues to drive that wedge between us and him, interrupting the continued harmonious dwelling of God with us. One of Jesus' names, Emmanuel, which means God with us. So God was telling us through the name that he wants to be with us, that God is with us. Throughout Jesus' ministry, he is calling people to himself. He called the disciples first, but he also called the crowds. He called the crowds that followed him. He called the people that he delivered, that he healed and that he blessed. Fast forward to the end of Jesus' ministry, towards the end of Jesus' ministry. The final things that he did before his death, at the point when he died, the curtain of the temple was torn in half from the top to the bottom. It was the inner curtain of the temple. And that was the place that separated the Holy of Holies, the place where God lived, and the place where people could visit. God was indicating that he was making himself accessible to us. That we will no longer die if we enter his presence, which would have been the case before then. There were certain rituals of purification that had to take place before a priest could enter the holiest place. But Jesus made a way for us to enter into the very presence of God. And after his resurrection from the dead, which closed the gap between man and God, providing a bridge that crossed the chasm created by sin, he was with the disciples when in John 22, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is a comforter. He's an advocate and he's an empowerer. But he also convicts us of sin. He points us back to increased connection and closeness with God. He understands that we cannot disobey God and live fully in his presence. Sin creates a separation from his presence. Sin is the wedge that always is there between us and God. His covenants still hold, but he removes his presence. He keeps his promise because he's a faithful God. 
but his presence is further from us because he's a holy God and he cannot look on sin. The extent to which you've got unrepented, convicted sin in your life is the extent to which you will miss out on God's presence in your life. But when the Holy Spirit convicts you of sin, he lets you know that something is there that's stuck between you and God. And if you don't act on that nudge from the Holy Spirit, if you stay in that particular sin that you're being told about, God's presence cannot remain there in quite the same way as it does after you repent. After Jesus ascended to heaven, the day of Pentecost came, when the Holy Spirit was poured out. God in the person of the Holy Spirit was once again dwelling not only with us but in us. God breathed life into Adam. Jesus breathed on his disciples, telling them to receive the Holy Spirit. And then he was poured into us with the appearance of fire. We have now become the dwelling place of God. 1 Corinthians 3.16 Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in your midst? We are the living temple of God. The ultimate way for God to dwell harmoniously with his people is to live inside of us. In the first temple, God lived in a tent, a temporary home. Now God lives in us, but our bodies are our temporary home. God asked for a forever home, and Solomon oversaw the building of a more permanent temple. And in the end, God will dwell with us permanently, and we with him in our permanent resurrected bodies. In the book of Revelation, after the new heaven and the new earth are revealed. It says, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them, and he will be their God. It's always been God's plan and intention to dwell with us. And in the end, unlike Moses, we will also be able to see his face. Revelation 22 On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing twelve crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the trees are for the healing of the nations. There's perpetual nourishment, and there's perpetual healing. No longer will there be any curse completely removed the curse from Adam. The throne of God and the Lamb will be in the city and his servants, that's us, will serve him. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. Amen.